TSA, a podcast about law and legal issues for students and everyone else. Hello, welcome to another season of TSA. I'm Robert Kaur, a lawyer and legal studies teacher, and today I'm going to talk about one of those fundamental issues of our justice system. Uh, we talk about having a fair and unbiased hearing, but what does that bias mean? Uh, what kinds of bias could judicial officers be susceptible to, and how can we address those? Do judges swoon when they see an attractive litigant, uh, or do they get hangry, and does that have an impact on the outcome of your case? I'll take you through some of the surprising research that's been conducted on these issues. But first, some legal issues that have been in the news recently. Summary matters. Seems like all of the news these days has been about coronavirus and Australia's response to the illness. One of the big issues that has arisen is the interplay between the states and the federal government in managing the response. We've seen the establishment of what's being called the National Cabinet, which is a, a sort of a variation on the cabinet process that um, is familiar in Westminster systems, uh, where you have the Premier or Prime Minister and the key cabinet ministers um, meeting to make um, the most significant executive decisions, whereas the normal cabinet is made up of the members of the one government, the one party or the one coalition, uh, and they're setting the priorities and making decisions on behalf of one government. The national cabinet is an intergovernmental body. It's made up of the prime minister and the chief ministers or the premiers of all of the states and territories. So they're not all from the same party. They obviously have divergent interests. Uh, you have um, Tasmania, obviously, geographically separate from the rest of the country. You have different states and territories with different stages of outbreak, different levels of community transmission and those sorts of things. So it's not a decision-making body in the sense that it can't make its own binding rulings that are enforceable on the public, but it's more of a, a coordinating body. So we have a, a, an organisation called the Council of Australian Governments, which is really the same sort of strategic planning committee that is really looking at how to coordinate the states and the national government in tackling big national issues that can't really be addressed um, coherently or consistently uh, when every government goes off to do its own things. So it's really a way of managing how a federal structure can tackle those big national problems that need a, a coherent and consistent approach. And if you think about coronavirus, it's one of these topics that hits right on the fault line between the federal government and the state government's responsibilities in the Australian federal structure. So it's something that began overseas. Uh, it's a quarantine issue. It's about international travellers coming to Australia and what the conditions are uh, about their arrival, about Australians going overseas. Um, but then it's also a health problem. And state governments obviously have primary responsibility for the healthcare system. It became an education issue because obviously we have that question about whether schools should stay open or whether they should close. And education is another of those primarily state government responsibility uh, issues. So the National Cabinet is designed to address that. So what we see is sometimes states doing their own thing. So Daniel Andrews deciding to close Victorian schools earlier than other states. Uh, but that's partly because school holidays in Victoria uh, were scheduled to start earlier than in other states. Um, but generally, 
they are coordinating so that uh, national issues are being dealt with at national level. A good illustration of that is the various states of emergency that have been declared in different jurisdictions, because they all have very similar powers under public health legislation to essentially declare a set for a set period, a state of emergency that then confers delegated authority to somebody, usually a, a chief medical officer or something like that, to impose control orders on the population, um, sometimes quite draconian orders um, with significant punishments attached. But the way we're seeing these powers being exercised, um, you know, we'll have national cabinet will make a, a decision about what is appropriate. The prime minister will come out and announce this as a national approach. But then when you look at who is implementing the decisions of the national cabinet, the Commonwealth and the state governments have a clear division of responsibilities. So the Commonwealth is relying on the Biosecurity Act, and that's based on its constitutional authority for things like customs, uh, quarantine, border control, rather than any general public health uh, legislation or public health principles. So when you look at what they've actually imposed, uh, it's a ban on cruise ships landing in Australia in particular situations. Um, more recently, the, the bans on international travellers to and from Australia. Um, when you look at what the states are doing, the states are the ones that are implementing the isolation rules, the rules about um, no more than two people meeting in a public place, the rules about what types of businesses are remaining open and what types of businesses are remaining closed. So those constitutional challenges of, well, who is responsible for this and do they actually have the legal authority to make binding decisions are resolved through this cooperation, bringing the governments together, trying to reach consensus about what the national approach should be, but then each government goes away and implements using its own powers with its own parliament, um, the decisions of that national group. Now that does mean that there are inconsistencies, national inconsistencies about the consequences if you were to break one of these control orders. So under the Commonwealth Biosecurity Act, uh, breaching those orders about overseas travel or about cruise ships arriving, the maximum penalty for breaking those orders is imprisonment for up to five years or a fine of 300 penalty units or $63,000. Now, if you were to break a rule in New South Wales about going out in public and meeting in too large a group, you would be committing an offence under the Public Health Act and the punishment for that would be imprisonment for six months or a fine of up to $11,000 and $5,500 for every day that the offence continues. Now, meanwhile, in Victoria, the Public Health and Wellbeing Act uh, sets no jail time. The maximum punishment is a fine of uh, 120 penalty units, uh, which is just under uh, $20,000. There's a real debate about the appropriateness of these punishments. Because on the one hand, uh, there's a real need to protect the community here. Uh, it's an extreme situation. That's why we have a declared state of emergency. And for example, we had uh, one case in New South Wales where the same man who has tested positive for uh, coronavirus has been put under a, a control order, an isolation control order, and he was caught breaching that uh, three times within 24 hours and um, so that he was arrested and, uh, and bail has been refused. Um, and you can understand why taking someone like that and compulsorily uh, detaining them um, is really important in stopping the spread of the illness. On the other hand, some of the rules that have been imposed are really regulating quite innocuous behaviour. And 
sometimes the rules themselves are uh, arbitrary and confusing. So for example, clause nine of the Victorian stay at home order says that a person may leave the premises to exercise, but must take reasonable steps to maintain a distance of 1.5 meters from all other persons. But it also says this does not prevent a person from walking with another person or persons for the purposes of exercise. So does that mean that you can walk with someone closer than 1.5 meters or do you have to still remain 1.5 meters away? And what do you do when the police stop you and attempt to issue an on-the-spot fine and you want to have an argument about the interpretation of the control order? The Age reported the story of a mother who took her young daughter for a walk on the beach uh, and checked the city of Port Phillips uh, website uh, before they left and it said that uh, people could access beaches as a thoroughfare, such as for a run or walking a dog. Uh, But when they got to the beach, the police stopped them and said, I'm going to have to ask you to leave the beach. The beaches are closed. Now that occurred before the public health order was issued, but would they be subjected to an on-the-spot fine in those circumstances? Um, Should they be? Now, of course, the police have discretion in dealing with these things, but of course, as soon as you introduce discretion into uh, legal decisions, Uh, that opens the way for bias to uh, infect the decision, uh, as you'll hear later in this episode. So we do need to be very careful and wary about uh, expanding police powers at a time of emergency. It does help that these powers are largely being exercised under a declaration of emergency situation. So they will expire. The the police will not always have the ability to fine you for going out and meeting more than one friend. Uh, They will expire at the end of the coronavirus situation. Uh, But nevertheless, it is something that we should always be conscious about. One advantage of the declaration of a state of emergency and handing over these decisions about making orders to a delegated authority is that Parliament has effectively uh, given the flexible control to somebody who can make quick decisions and can implement a decision, you know, within minutes of it being taken. Uh, So we see the National Cabinet makes a decision late in the evening and by the following day, lunchtime, new rules are in place and they can be enforced immediately. Sometimes, though, the changes that are necessary go beyond uh, just issuing orders within that public health framework. So an example might be um, the welfare response. So the changes to new start allowance, the proposed changes to wage subsidies, changes to tax rates, those sorts of things that go beyond the sort of regulatory tweaks that can be made by a delegated authority. So the question then is, how is Parliament able to respond quickly? Um, And is Parliament able to respond when parliamentarians are also concerned about uh, coronavirus and particularly the national parliament? Uh, People travel from all over the country, meet together, live together, and then go home to their own communities. So there is a danger that the the virus might spread through politicians. We already know that uh, Peter Dutton Um, In fact, the Minister for Border Control, who made an early decision to lock uh, Chinese Australians in uh, detention in Christmas Island on the off chance that they had uh, coronavirus uh, returning into Australia. Uh, But then he personally uh, brought it back from the US with him. And and now uh, there's some suggestion that he may have passed it on to other people at political uh, fundraising events. So there's a real worry that politicians might contribute to the spread of, of the illness Uh, if Parliament was to convene. Uh, Now, Anne Toomey, uh, a professor of constitutional law at the University of Sydney, has written a great article explaining 
why, in her view, there's no constitutional reason why Parliament could not continue to sit um, even through a, a virtual online Parliament. Um, and she says, certainly the framers of the Constitution did not envisage Parliament sitting with members dispersed and communicating by way of technology, but they did recognise that communications technology was quickly changing in the 1890s and that those changes needed to be accommodated. The Constitution is commonly interpreted in a manner that accommodates changes in facts and technology, so the absence of such technology in the 1890s is not a barrier. Parliament needs to sit in the seat of government, which is now in the Australian Capital Territory, but that could be accommodated by having a minimum number of key personnel, such as the presiding officers, perhaps a minister at Parliament House, hosting the electronic meeting. Participating members could then log in from elsewhere. There appears to be no reason why attendance may not, with the permission of the House, be by electronic means. She also noted that just before Parliament was adjourned for an extended period to cover this coronavirus um, uh, situation, the House of Representatives agreed to amend its standing orders to allow it to meet in a manner and form not otherwise provided in the standing orders with the agreement of the Leader of the House and the Manager of the Opposition Business with the manner in which members may be present, including for the purposes of achieving a quorum to be determined by the Speaker. So that really means that uh, if the two major parties agreed that an urgent hearing was necessary, they could do that online through Skype, Zoom, whatever the, the technology they decide might be. Um, but they've kind of made that rule change just in case. So far, that hasn't been necessary. Um, Parliament will reconvene next week to pass uh, economic measures um, changes to the welfare system, changes to wage subsidies, those sorts of things. Uh, but it's going ahead with a traditional hearing. And because Parliament has what they call a quorum, so a minimum number of MPs who must be in the chamber for a vote to be taken as a valid vote, um, the parties have agreed that they'll only send the minimum required number of MPs to Canberra to hold that debate and to pass the legislation uh, validly as quickly as possible but they do have that uh, electronic voting option uh, available uh, should the need arise. Courts have also been impacted by the coronavirus um, as public venues where large numbers of people congregate, they spend all day together, sometimes in cramped uh, quarters. And so they've had to make some really difficult decisions about balancing the essential nature of their work prioritising what types of cases need to go ahead, uh, prioritising what types of cases need to go ahead in person. Um, and the Judicial College of Victoria has put together a really useful uh, page where they summarise all of the restrictions that have been imposed in the various courts around Australia. So you can find that link in the show notes. Um, but for example, the High Court has suspended all sittings in April, May and June um, it will still deal with special leave applications and urgent matters, but it says they'll be dealt with and it doesn't say uh, that they're necessarily going to be heard in person. Now, the Supreme Court of Victoria is, like many courts, uh, a court where uh, a wide range of different cases are heard and it has made different arrangements depending on the nature of um, the work. So in the common law division, one of the civil law divisions, jury trials have all been cancelled, so they will all be re uh, replaced by trials by judge alone. Um, they'll be heard via telephone or audiovisual link, and the parties will be lodging papers electronically. Um, all new jury trials, so for criminal cases in Victoria, indictable 
trials must be heard by jury. There's no uh, option to hear, hear those by judge alone. They've all been suspended until further notice. Um, and in any case where in-person hearings are required, um, the listing times are going to be staggered to allow for social distancing so that people aren't all waiting in the court waiting rooms and in the lobby at the same time. Uh, the family court and the federal circuit court have imposed an eight-person cap on non-court staff in the courtroom at any one time. And the Australian Financial Review, which has an excellent legal affairs section, um, reported that the rule, the eight-person rule in the, the family court and federal circuit court was imposed because the chief judge personally brought a tape measure down to one of the courtrooms. And he was quoted saying, I took seven other people down with me to a courtroom in the federal courts complex in Melbourne and said, you sit here, you sit here, you sit here. Uh, I did the measuring. There's another great report in The Age about how the Melbourne Magistrates Court is dealing with the coronavirus situation, and particularly uh, Deputy Chief Magistrate uh, Popovich's courtroom, uh, which is one of the busy list courtrooms. So it's ordinarily uh, packed with people, everyone waiting to get uh, the case heard, uh, sitting at the back, waiting in the foyer in close quarters. And obviously that's not necessarily best practice at the moment. Um, and uh, Magistrate Popovich's approach is to just churn through the, the matters as quickly as possible. So she must be doing a lot of reading, uh, getting on top of the files and essentially dealing with them on the papers, even though uh, she is hearing cases in person. Here's a, a flavour of it. Um, a name is called and the man approaches the bar table. Yes, Miss Popovich says. The man begins to explain why he's making the application, but the magistrate cuts him off. Yes, your application is granted, she clarifies. Another doesn't even make it to the bar table before he's sent away. Stay there if you like, sir. That's a yes from me, she tells him, channeling a reality television show judge. It's a great piece of court reporting. It really gives you a sense of what that courtroom is like and what the personalities of the people involved uh, are like. It was written by uh, Karen Sweeney from the Australian Associated Press, and it's a real disappointment that the AAP is being closed down soon uh, because really uh, it does the bulk of the court reporting in Australia, um, and it's really high-quality reporting, and we'll lose a lot uh, when it uh, eventually closes down. So uh, have a read. The link is in the show notes. Uh, but for now, let's move on to the main topic of this episode. Examination in Chief. After the High Court's Mabo decision in 1992, which recognised the traditional land ownership systems of Aboriginal peoples, the leader of the National Party, Tim Fisher, called for the appointment of capital C Conservatives to the High Court. Of course, there's something deeply conservative about the Mabo decision in that it upheld the continuing force of ancient laws and ancient land ownership systems, and it also applied the traditional common law principles about how an occupying power's law and legal systems interacted with the uh, pre-existing legal systems that were in place um, before the occupying power arrived. And um, what changed in Marba was not so much those underlying legal rules, as the, the historical and anthropological evidence about the nature of pre-colonial Aboriginal societies. And the court then applied that uh, long-standing legal principle that when a coloniser arrives in a inhabited land, the pre-existing legal system continues to operate um, until it is specifically 
replaced by the occupying power. And the creativity that the court uh, adopted was really to address a new problem that arose because of that conservative application of the common law. Um, and that, of course, was how do we accommodate uh, a, an unfamiliar uh, land ownership system that doesn't flow from the old medieval feudal uh, idea that the crown owns all land? How do we accommodate that within our legal system? Uh, of course, what Tim Fisher was reacting to was not so much a debate about the jurisprudence of the court. It was about an outcome that was politically challenging for him as the leader of the party, the National Party representing farming communities and mining uh, interests who were understandably concerned about the impact of Mabo on their land ownership and therefore their, their business and their livelihoods. And it's a political response that has some resonance with a recent High Court decision, uh, which was again about the rights of Aboriginal people. Um, and this time it was about whether uh, Aboriginal people, uh, that is people who are um, of Aboriginal descent, who identify as Aboriginal and who are accepted by the Aboriginal community as being Aboriginal, which is what we call the tripartite definition of Aboriginality. So the, the court's decision was that people who are um, recognised as Aboriginal uh, cannot be considered alien to Australia under the constitution. And by coincidence, after this decision upholding Aboriginal rights, um, there has been another strong backlash from conservative political activists. Uh, again, not just questioning the decision, but questioning uh, the, the supposed bias of the High Court judges themselves. So we saw Morgan Begg, who is an activist at the, um, the Institute of Public Affairs, which is a right-wing uh, think tank, uh, complaining about left-wing judges making judgments based on their own subjective policy preferences. And he called for two upcoming appointments to replace Justice Nettle in December and Justice Bell next March when they reach the compulsory retirement age to be explicitly capital C conservatives. The complaint about left-wing judges is a bit strange considering that three of the four majority judges in the recent decision were appointed by the coalition, the conservative side of politics. So again, it seems to be more a complaint about the legal and political outcome of the case rather than the judicial method adopted in the case. And of course, the phrase capital C conservatives um, has attracted some criticism. And those people who use it, so Tim Fisher back in uh, uh, 1992 and Morgan Begg and, and others uh, around the Institute of Public Affairs more recently, uh, they say that they're talking about legal conservatism. So the, the idea of um, changing the constitution or changing the law gradually, uh, leaving to parliament um, more radical changes if, that, if that's necessary. But the problem is that the, the phrase capital C conservative is a term that originated in the UK to distinguish between non-partisan people with a generally conservative outlook, that is small c conservatives, and partisan members of the conservative party capital C conservatives. So in Australia, our main right-wing party is the Liberal Party. So you hear the similar distinction being made between small L and capital L liberals or big L liberals. And so when you hear that term, capital C conservative, it immediately uh, suggests a call for partisan political appointments to the High Court. Now, this kind of criticism is difficult for judges because they're supposed to allow their judgments to speak for themselves and not to sort of join the political fray and, and defend themselves in the media. 
Um, so there are a couple of methods that are often used to, um, to deal with this. And one is that the attorney general in our system um, is often treated as uh, somewhat different to the other ministers of the crown um, in that their part of their role is to defend the independence of the judiciary. And so that can mean um, that they do speak publicly to defend um, the, the record and the reputation of the judges. In this case, there's a slight wrinkle in that the debate itself is about how the attorney general should exercise their power to uh, appoint judges. And he's a member of the Institute of Public Affairs. Um, so in this case, the defense of the judges has fallen to an organization called the Judicial Conference of Australia, which is really a representative body uh, of judges. So it's sort of speaking on behalf of um, the judges of Australia as a whole. Um, and its president, uh, Judith Kelly, uh, a justice of the Supreme Court of the Northern Territory, uh, wrote a couple of uh, opinion columns um, in the Australian newspaper responding to the um, calls for uh, capital C conservatives. And a couple of the points that she made, uh, I think, bear repeating. So she said, some commentators have described the approach to constitutional interpretation adopted by the majority justices variously as novel, judicial activism, and impressionistic. The chief purpose of those descriptors is to signify that such an approach is somehow political, while the alternative is not. Characterizing the approach of majority as impressionistic and that of the minority as legal conservatism and equating legal conservatism with merit is itself a political position. Particularly unfortunate is the call from several sources for the government to appoint capital C conservatives. There is talk of building a legally conservative high court to curb judicial activism. It is a call for blatantly political appointments to be made. Uh, the idea that a government should make appointments to the highest court in Australia on the basis that an appointee is likely to uphold the policy preference of the government of the day is an anathema. The disastrous consequences of such an approach can be seen in the unfortunate politicisation of the US Supreme Court. Now on that at least, Justice Kelly and the IPA agree, because in the same articles calling for capital C appointees, the IPA praises the US Federalist Society, which is a, 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 an American think tank um, or a political activist organisation that grooms conservative, politically conservative lawyers for future appointments to the judiciary by conservative politicians. And perhaps the IPA is trying to um, create a similar role for itself here in Australia. But while this debate rages, uh, we should keep in mind that with a few exceptions, judges in Australia are not really regarded as political animals, and most cases do not involve highly politically charged issues, at least perhaps not in a partisan sense. But what about other types of bias, and the kinds of bias that might affect every case from the top to the bottom of the legal system? In some ways, those big ticket forms of bias are less of a problem because they're easier for us to identify, they're easier for judges themselves to identify and to correct for. Um, some academic work has been done on um, more difficult forms of bias, uh, Cornell Law School uh, research paper written by Andrew J. Wistrich and Jeffrey Rachlinski um, on implicit bias in judicial decision-making uh, said that some types of implicit bias are highly salient and embarrassing, such as implicit racial bias, 
judges seem to be on guard against these. Thus, the greater risk may be factors other than race or gender, such as beauty, age, obesity, religion, ethnicity, skin tone, and so on, that are not likely to be as salient or worrisome to judges. So what I'd like to do is share with you some of the research that has been done um, looking at these other types of bias in the legal system, these sort of less uh, headline-grabbing forms of bias. Now, the first uh, form of bias on their list was beauty bias, and it's sometimes called attractiveness bias. And uh, really, this is asking, um, is there some benefit um, or some penalty uh, for a participant in the legal process? So that could be a defendant, it could be a plaintiff, it could be a witness. Uh, Is there a consequence uh, in terms of how you are uh, received in the legal system based on your attractiveness um, or your perceived attractiveness? And one of the ways that this has been tested is that in a lot of American jurisdictions, uh, when the police arrest you, uh, they take a a photograph of you, um, sometimes called a mugshot, and those um, mugshots are public documents, public records. So journalists have access to those. And that's why you often see, you know, some celebrity got pulled over for drink driving and you see a terrible uh, photo of them on uh, the gossip uh, news. Um, But it's useful for researchers because they can also access those photographs. And so um, uh, various groups have done studies using um, this information. So in one case, Uh, a group of police officers and students were asked to uh, rate the attractiveness of over 2,000 criminals uh, on a scale of one to five. And what they found was that people were fairly consistent in their uh, assessment. So we're talking about kind of conventional standards of of beauty or conventional standards of attractiveness. And they divided up the judge's sentencing decisions to basically two categories, misdemeanors and felonies. And misdemeanors are what we in Australia would call uh, summary offences and felonies are similar to what we call indictable offences, so more serious offences. And then the researchers took those subjective ratings of attractiveness and matched them up against the actual outcomes of those criminals' cases. And what they found was that for misdemeanors, judges awarded... uh, significantly higher fines, 200, 300% higher fines for criminals who were considered to be unattractive. Um, There was another case in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia uh, where they looked at 67 defendants. Uh, They did a similar assessment of their attractiveness and they found that criminals of low attractiveness were sentenced to 4.1 years in prison and criminals of high attractiveness were sentenced to just 1.87 years in prison. So when you see lawyers uh, advising clients to you know, dress up for court, go out and buy a suit, even if you've never worn a suit before in your life, um, there's a good reason for that. You know, there is this statistical evidence that shows your appearance can have uh, or might have an impact on the decision maker's um, attitude towards you. So, I mean, there are obviously aspects of attractiveness that are beyond people's control, um, but things like having a haircut, shining your shoes, those sorts of things that are within people's control, rightly or wrongly, may have an impact on the outcome of their case. And now there is um, 
obviously a concern about fairness here. Should you know, should your physical appearance um, have an impact on your sentence? Um, probably not. I mean, I'd love to hear uh, the arguments um, in favour of taking that uh, into account. Um, look, there's another study uh, along the same lines, which is maybe a little bit more interesting, and that was looking at um, what were described as baby-faced defendants. Um, so this was a study that took place in uh, civil courts, um, and there's no mugshots, obviously, in civil cases. So they had a team of um, participants who were coding um, the data who sat in 421 cases in six branches of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts small claim courts, and they were looking at how baby-faced the defendant was um, in basically tort claims. And they were looking at features like larger eyes, um, thinner and higher eyebrows, large forehead, a small chin, um, and a curved sort of round face rather than angular face uh, to quantify how baby-faced someone is. And what they found was the more baby-faced, so the higher you kind of scored on that scale of baby-facedness, um, the less likely they were to be found liable for intentional acts in civil claims. So things like uh, intentional property damage or uh, perhaps a fraud type case or a breach of contract that involve um, uh, some sort of intent, um, the more baby-faced you are, the less likely you would be uh, found liable. Um, but how baby-faced you are had no effect in uh, claims for negligence. So we might speculate about why that is, and you might think, you know, for example, um, because we know babies can't obviously form uh, intent that maybe subconsciously if we see someone who reminds us of a baby, we're less likely to attribute the same sort of intent to them. Um, but of course, a baby can be negligent um, in the sense that they, you know, they inadvertently do something wrong. Um, and so there's no um, favor given to baby-faced people in those unintentional civil claims. I think what concerns me uh, is that in a range of studies, different methods, different places, uh, criminal courts, civil courts, um, we have evidence that the physical appearance, whether that's attractiveness or the shape of someone's face or you know whatever it is, the attractiveness uh, has a measurable statistical impact on the consequences of the legal system for different participants, defendants in, you know, in civil or criminal cases. And how can we control for that? How can we remove that um, irrational, illogical, um, and unfair aspect from the system? Physical appearance is not the only uh, irrational factor that might have an impact on uh, the way judges make their decisions about a particular person. And there has been some investigation um, in a more sort of an experimental sense rather than an observational sense of using um, hypothetical scenarios that are essentially the same, but changing some detail about the, um, the scenario to introduce an irrelevant fact um, that is designed to test whether people are swayed by irrelevant but potentially sympathetic qualities of one of the participants in the case. So there was one study where um, there was a, a hypothetical statute and a scenario was created to um, require a statutory interpretation 
um, in which the background of the, the the litigants in the case would be irrelevant to making that kind of grammatical decision about what does the statute mean. So the, the example was uh, this hypothetical uh, marijuana prosecution, and there was a defense in the hypothetical statute that said a defendant uh, could not be prosecuted if a doctor had stated in an affidavit that the defendant had a medical need for marijuana. And the question that the judge was asked to decide was, um, does it matter whether that doctor's affidavit comes before or after the person has been arrested? This is really setting up a straightforward um, statutory interpretation exercise. And there are different approaches that you could take. So, uh, you know, one option would be to say that in a criminal prosecution, if there is ambiguity in the, in the, uh, in the law, that the ambiguity should be resolved in favour of the defendant um, to protect people from kind of excessive prosecution. So in this case, well, if it's ambiguous about um, does a post-arrest affidavit count, you would say, yes, it does, because that protects the defendant more strongly. But you could equally look at a purposive approach and say, well, why would Parliament create this excuse? It's for people who have uh, a medical need for marijuana, and it's really to, um, to deal with prescriptions. So if your doctor has prescribed marijuana, you should be protected. Um, but if you don't have that uh, statement from your doctor before you're arrested, well, Parliament didn't intend to protect you. So th- there wasn't necessarily a right or wrong answer, um, but that's not the point. The point of this uh, exercise was to actually to give two slightly different versions of the scenario um, to the group. And so in some people's kind of information pack, the defendant was described as a 19-year-old who was using the drug to combat seizures. And in another uh, pack, the defendant was described as a a 55-year-old who was dying of bone cancer. Both of those conditions could legitimately be treated uh, with medical marijuana. But what they found was um, judges were far more likely to decide in favour of the 55-year-old with bone cancer than they were to to side with the 19-year-old with seizures. And there's no reason that their medical condition or their age should have any impact on how you interpret the wording of that statute. Um, But it did seem to, you know, when we look at it at that statistical level. Um, Now, I don't know um, whether it was the medical condition or the age or some combination of those things uh, that was causing that difference in um, decision. But what it does show is that there's a risk that... um, uh, decisions about statutory interpretation could be influenced by the the personal characteristics of the people bringing the case to court. You know, information that the the judges all know is irrelevant to their decision that somehow still uh, has an impact on the outcome of the case. And just think about um, if this was a statute, a new statute. So Victoria, for example, has introduced medical marijuana laws. Um, you know, they're not set up in exactly that way. But someone is going to be the first judge to make a binding interpretation of uh, a, you know, a new statute, uh, potentially on something like medical marijuana that might be um, relatively controversial. And the consequences, obviously, for defendants um, could be quite significant depending on the outcomes. And we obviously don't want those decisions about statutory interpretation to be made based on um, who brought the case to court? Who was the first person charged? Who was the first person to try to use that defense or to try to 
uh, run that argument about how the law should be interpreted. Um, it shouldn't matter who brought the case to court. Um, if we believe in the rule of law and that the law is there and all people uh, are treated equally before the law, then we should expect the same outcome regardless of who has presented the case. Perhaps even more concerning, what if the outcome of the case has nothing to do with the people involved? So uh, what if it has nothing to do with the attractiveness of the person, how baby-faced they are, uh, what clothes they're wearing, um, whether they're 19 or 55 or what their medical conditions are? What if the unfair bias in a case comes from the characteristics of the judge? There's a, a quite famous study that was conducted looking at parole decisions made in Israeli courts. And uh, it was a, a, a study by an associate professor of business at Columbia University um, who uh, conducted a peer-reviewed research looking at more than a thousand rulings made in an Israeli court by eight different judges. And they looked at um, the time of day that the decision was made. And then they looked at the likelihood of a, a favorable or unfavorable uh, outcome. So do you get parole? Do you not get parole? And what they found was um, the likelihood of a favorable ruling peaked at the beginning of the day, steadily declined from about 65% to nearly zero before spiking back up to about 65% after a break for a meal or snack. This is sometimes described as the hangry judges case. Uh, you know, as judges get hungrier, they get crankier and they're less favorably disposed to uh, people making applications before them. Now, there is some reason to think that um, you might have more luck in the morning. So often in these busy courts where you have a long list of people uh, who are waiting at the back of the court until their matter gets called on, you know, the magistrate's court in Victoria, everyone's case starts at 9 a.m. You turn up and you wait and it's like, take a number and the judge will get to you when they get to you. And uh, often the judge will organize that list in order to get people out of the court as quickly as possible. So if it's a straightforward, easy application, they'll often put them at the front of the list. So you might expect that you'll have more favorable decisions uh, in the morning and that will taper off through the day as they become more complicated. And the people who are going to take the longest get put at the back of the queue because you don't want to hold everybody else up because you're waiting for some you know, particularly difficult uh, argument to be um, considered. Um, but the interesting thing in this case is that jump after the uh, meal breaks. So every time there's a meal break, the decision rate comes back up to uh, that 65% level. And that does suggest um, that it's not so much about how the cases are organized throughout the day, that there is some connection with the time of day uh, that is not related to the complexity or how controversial the case is. Now, um, the assumption, I guess, because you hear, oh, it's the meal break, is that as the judge gets hungry, they get uh, angry, uh, and then they're less favorable. But the, the suggestion from the peer-reviewed study was that there may be some other explanation. So they said there is previous uh, research on decision-making functions that said uh, making repeated judgments or decisions depletes people's uh, executive functioning and mental resources. So the more uh, repetitive decision-making and particularly taxing decision-making you do, 
the harder it is to do it in in the future. And it reduces your tolerance for pain when you're doing a subsequent task. So it actually hurts you to, to make uh, repeated decisions. And so this is st- studies from outside the law. So things about just making a choice between different products. Uh, if you have to continually make choices, um, it, it gradually wears you down and you, you find it harder to make kind of good choices um, after making a series of decisions. So there was a study about um, German car buyers who they would just eventually start to believe whatever the salesperson told them about cars. So they come in quite skeptical, questioning, um, looking for more information. And the more decisions they had to make and the more comparisons they were being asked to make, the more they just kind of gave up and fell back on the information that they were being presented. And so the quality of the decision-making and perhaps their willingness to just um, go with the status quo, which in the case of a parole decision is obviously to refuse parole to keep the person in prison, uh, was increased not because they were hungry, but because it's mentally draining to make difficult decisions and to process complicated information. And of course, that's, that's what we expect judges to do a lot. Now, um, it's not true of every legal decision. So, you know, if it's a big Supreme Court trial, uh, it might take days. It's one case. Uh, there's plenty of time. The judge can go away, think about their decision, and then make the final decision when they're ready. But if you're in the magistrate's court and you're making a series of really fast decisions about bail, about uh, family violence intervention orders, um, about sentences for people, you know, in a busy list, you might uh, go through a whole series of um, speeding parking ticket offences. Um, that will wear you down. Uh, obviously, having a break, refreshing your uh, mental reserves, kind of restores that decision-making function. Um, the consequence for the public in you know, getting your case heard by the judge may be that you want them to make the decision as soon as possible. And perhaps it is dependent on, you know, which side of the status quo you're on. You know, if that theory is correct, that uh, people kind of fall back on the default position when decision-making becomes more difficult, then obviously if you're asking the judge to do something unusual, you want that decision and that discussion to be heard early. And if you want them to uh, just give you the normal outcome, um, then you want that decision to be made as late as possible. But again, is this the way that we want decisions, important legal decisions, uh, you know, decisions that in the magistrate's court that are small, minor decisions in the scheme of the legal system have profound impacts on people's life. Uh, you know, whether you get bail or don't get bail could be the, the difference between whether you keep your job, whether you keep your, uh, your mortgage paid. Um, so we need to make sure that magistrates are making those decisions properly. Um, and so perhaps that is a question of uh, reducing workload, uh, reducing the number of cases that are plowed through in those busy lists. And, you know, frankly, I, I hate to think uh, what it's going to be like when the coronavirus situation is over and that backlog of cases starts to hit the courts again and they're in, you know, that sort of crisis mode of getting through as many cases as quickly as possible. Um, well, what is the consequence for the judge's decision making abilities and then what is the consequence on the justice to the parties involved there was another study uh, conducted in america um, it was done by the the louisiana state university and again business studies or ec- uh, economics professors 
who looked at um, children's court decisions, juvenile court decisions made um, over a pretty long period from 1996 to 2012. And what they did was they looked at um, which university the different judges had attended. So they looked up their resumes and they found out who, where did they get their undergraduate degrees. Um, and obviously college football in America is extremely uh, important. Um, it's extremely uh, emotionally involving. And so what the researchers looked at was uh, to match up the university football teams uh, of various judges and then to look at decisions that were made in the weeks after their university team lost a big football match. So this is really looking at um, do we have sore loser judges uh, who are so upset about the football that they then take it out on the litigants in their courts? And quite shockingly, the answer seems to be yes. Uh, yes, they do. Um, so they looked at uh, the LSU, the Louisiana State University Tigers. And they found that when the Tigers lost, judges who went to that university were disproportionately harsh in their sentencing. Um, and particularly if the team was doing well. So in uh, games where they were ranked in the top 10 and then they suffered an unexpected loss, uh, that would uh, equate to an additional 63 days uh, added onto judgments in the following week on average. Um, if it wasn't such an important uh, game, then it would still lead to another 36 uh, days. And perhaps most disturbingly, this bias seems to have a racial component. So when you had uh, a black defendant, uh, they, were, they would have uh, 46 additional days on their sentence, where white defendants would only get about another seven or eight days. So I think the, the problem, I mean, apart from the obvious problem, which is that football results should have no uh, impact on judicial decision making or and particularly sentencing people to prison. Um, but apart from that, I think the bigger concern is that it suggests here that these kinds of kind of unconscious bias, um, they have a disproportionate effect on more vulnerable people. So judges who are probably, you know, conscious of racial bias may allow their unrelated, you know, non-racial uh, biases, so you know their emotional upset, uh, they may allow it to infect uh, their decisions in a racially prejudiced way, um, and that makes it more difficult to tackle because you can't just deal with these issues of unconscious bias by saying, "Look, unconscious racial bias is uh, pernicious. Uh, you need to focus on it. You need to, um, you know, actively try to avoid it." Because when other things make lead judges to make biased decisions, it can have this kind of disproportionate um, uh, impact. So really we need to focus on uh, eliminating all kinds of unconscious bias because they have this interplay with more sinister kinds of bias. Um, you know, and obviously there is uh, inherent value in saying that when you turn up to court, you're not going to go to jail because your judge's football team lost on the weekend. Um, now, college football is obviously not such a big deal in Australia, um, but you, you know, it might be interesting to look at something like um, state of origin. I wonder if some enterprising researcher could dig into the uh, New South Wales and Queensland uh, sentencing decisions in, in the weeks around um, uh, state of origin 
rugby matches to see whether that same sort of effect is found here in Australia. And I mean, it's not, it's not just football and it's not necessarily even that football um, has an emotional uh, resonance to it that, that affects people's decisions. Um, there are a lot of studies about kind of completely irrelevant uh, factors having a measurable impact on judicial decision-making. And so there's this uh, concept called anchoring uh, in psychology, which says that um, numeric reference points, so when anyone hears a number, um, that can become an anchor uh, in your mind so that when you are making decisions um, about numbers, you have this sort of feeling and intuition that the correct answer is somewhere near the, the anchor. Um, and most of the time, this is a helpful uh, idea because, you know, if you know what the, the, the retail price, you know, you'll never pay full price for whatever the item is. But if you know what the, the standard or recommended retail price is, it helps you make assessments about, well, you know, is this a good discount? Is this not a good discount? Those sorts of things. So those sorts of anchors are really useful in decision making. The problem is that our brains um, tend to kind of create these patterns um, even in situations where they're meaningless and even when we explicitly know they're meaningless, even when we know that the numbers that we're thinking about have absolutely no possible bearing on the case, um, we can still measure and find that people kind of are sucked in by them. So there was one study, for example, where a group of judges were given a case study. Um, it was deliberately set up to be a case study where liability is not an issue. So it was a, a racial discrimination case. Uh, there was um, evidence of a particular um, person being racially abused at work and then being fired when she complained about it. So it's sort of an open and shut case. And then the judges were kind of given that information and told uh, to decide how much damages she should receive. Um, but half of the judges were given this information that in the, the plaintiff's testimony, she had mentioned that she had seen uh, a TV judge like Judge Judy uh, award someone $415,300. Um, so the judges who made the decision without hearing that irrelevant figure awarded her just over $6,000. Um, but when they did hear about that figure, uh, they awarded about $50,000. So just hearing the number $415,000 uh, had this big impact on how the judges thought about the case. And all of these judges knew that if a plaintiff says, oh, I saw someone on TV got $400,000, that that's not evidence. That's irrelevant to the case. So they, you know, they're not, it's not like jurors who might hear a number and, you know, you might think that they find that that's relevant somehow. But these are judges who understand what is relevant, what is not. Um, and despite that, they still seem to be statistically uh, influenced by it. Uh, there was another study where they had a scenario about a nightclub um, making too much noise. And depending on the name of the nightclub, so if it was uh, described as Club 11866, uh, it would be fined more than if it was described as Club 58. So these numbers aren't even dollar figures. They're just big number, little number, big fine, little fine. So it's just the fact that we hear a big number makes us think about big numbers. Um, another case, judges imposed a shorter sentence on a criminal defendant um, when they're asked to do so in months as opposed to years. So same facts, same scenario, but one group of judges were asked how many years should this person be sentenced for and the other group were asked how many months should this person be sentenced for. 
when they're sentencing in years, the average sentence was nine years. When they're sentencing in months, it was 63 months, which works out to five and a quarter years. So thinking in that unit of measurement has that impact on what, what feels like a long sentence or what feels like a short sentence, depending on the unit that's being used. So these two things, this concept of anchoring and our, maybe our inability to quickly um, mentally move between different units of measurement can have a, an impact on people's sentence. And if you think about how court trials play out, so think about a sentencing decision. Now, both sides are asked to present what they believe the, a fair sentence should be. So the prosecutor will present usually a range based on um, past sentencing, uh, similar case table, that sort of thing. The defense will go in with their plea of mitigation and say, you know, please, you're on at the lower end of the scale. That's where my client belongs. But just by using particular numbers and making particular suggestions, that can have an impact on the judge. So are you asking in months? Are you asking in years? Are you suggesting a very low number? Are you suggesting a very high number? The way the judges are hearing about the information and those um, and the use of numbers in the way that the parties are presenting the information to the judge can create anchors that will then have an irrational uh, impact on the sentencing outcome. Um, there was a study that tested this specifically um, by giving 39 judges a ridiculous sentencing suggestion from the prosecutor. And in fact, the way the scenario was presented, it was made clear that the prosecutor had no idea. It wasn't based on any actual information. They were just guessing. And so they just kind of threw out a number. So the judge knew that that was not useful sentencing information. It's just a random number being plucked out of the air by the prosecutor. And yet judges that were given a low sentencing suggestion gave a sentence of four months. Judges that, that were uh, given the high sentencing suggestion gave a sentence of six months. So there was some anchoring going on. Uh, even when the judge knew that what was being suggested was, uh, you know, just a made up number. Um, so to kind of push this theory further, uh, a follow-up study was conducted with 52 judges. They were given a booklet describing a, a, a theft case um, and they were told what th that the prosecutor would make a sentencing demand, but the, the information pack left that number blank. And the judges were in, instead told to, to roll two dice and, um, and then fill in the, the sentencing uh, suggestion based on the results of the dice. Now, the dice were rigged for the study so that they would always give the same results. So half of them would always get the same low result and half of them would always get the same high result. And what they, they found was the judges who know, or at least they believe that the number is random, they are personally throwing the dice to fill in the blank in the scenario. The ones who got the low number gave a sentence of five months. The ones who gave a high number gave a sentence of eight months. So even when the judges know the number is made up, in fact, they think they've made the number up themselves, they still use that random information and it has that impact on the sentence that they give. So just think about that in terms of implicit bias. So even when the judge is aware uh, that that information is irrelevant, they still uh, place some reliance on it. Now, that's obviously directly relevant when we're thinking about the length of a particular sentence and is it anchored to some irrelevant number or the um, damages case and was it anchored to that irrelevant reference about you know how much someone got on TV for a similar case. 
The broader question, though, might be, well, maybe judges are just not really very good or not as good as they think they are at putting aside information that they've heard that they know is irrelevant. And we know that when juries are involved in a case, we go to lengths to try to keep irrelevant information away from them. So, you know, sometimes that seems artificial. A witness gives evidence. They say something that they shouldn't. One of the parties objects. The judge says, yes, the objection sustained. Um, members of the jury, please disregard the, the answer to the previous question. Now, uh, we all look at that and think, well, are the jury really going to put that aside? And we, I mean, we hope they do. Uh, and if it was bad enough that the court, you know, might take more serious action. But in a case where it's a judge hearing information, so sentencing, where the rules of evidence are relaxed to begin with, but uh, trial by judge alone or in the magistrate's court, where they hear evidence and they think, well, I'm a trained judge. I know that that was hearsay. I'm going to put it out of my mind. Now, we know a judge can't put aside the fact that they rolled some dice and that still has an impact on their sentence. Um, well, are they actually able to put aside information that they know is irrelevant, that they've ruled is irrelevant, but does it in their subconscious have some ongoing lingering impact on the way that they make their decisions in the case? Just coming back to that Cornell Law School research paper on implicit bias in judicial decision-making, the authors summarise this issue of um, ignoring uh, irrelevant evidence as follows. In a series of studies that compared decisions in hypothetical cases made by judges who were exposed to inadmissible information and by those who were not, judges found it difficult to ignore inadmissible information. In most of these studies, judges first determined whether the information was admissible and then had to ignore it if they suppressed it. If judges can ignore inadmissible information, then those judges who suppressed the inadmissible evidence should have made roughly the same decisions as those judges who never saw the evidence. Most of the studies found that judges were unable to ignore the inadmissible evidence. There was one study that found they couldn't ignore evidence about the sexual history of a rape complainant and that this had an impact on the judge's assessment of the witness's credibility. Other studies have found a similar inability to disregard inadmissible evidence in other contexts. Judges could not ignore a discussion protected by attorney-client privilege in a civil case, the past criminal conviction of a civil defendant, discussions that occurred during a settlement conference, and statements made by a criminal defendant that a prosecutor had agreed not to use as part of a plea agreement. That's a very broad range of different contexts in which that same issue presented problems, bias problems. And uh, we're not talking about political bias here. We're talking about um, the kind of bias that is, um, you know, even well-intentioned, well-trained people fall victim to because that's just the way human brains work. They are pattern-creating machines and they absorb uh, all of the information that we can kind of throw at them and they are pretty good at filtering out what's relevant and what's ir irrelevant. Um, but they do that in an intuitive way. They don't necessarily do that in a, a strictly logical, rational way. Um, and judges are expected to make their decisions in that, you know, artificially, in that human sense, artificially logical and artificially restricted way where we can pretend we haven't heard certain information, where we can pretend that we aren't influenced by the way someone looks 
we aren't influenced by the numbers that we've heard and the, the sort of the patterns and the ways of thinking that they lead us into. Um, and the danger for our legal system is that people get unfair outcomes in their case. Potentially, people get unfair precedent set because judges are influenced by irrelevant factors in their decision-making process. So what can we do about this? Um, well, the good news is there are some simple things that can be done. Um, the first really is to give judges more thinking time. Um, bias is more likely to infect your decision-making process when you are making decisions uh, in an artificially fast, uh, high-pressure uh, environment and when you have uh, case after case, decision after decision um, bearing down on you. So giving judges some breathing room, that means probably appointing more judges, funding the legal system to allow judges to take more time in an individual case um, and to do that without pushing out uh, the, the timelines on people getting a, a resolution. It really means more judges and more courts. Um, partly we do this by filtering our cases according to their seriousness uh, into the higher courts where there's more time taken more detailed reasons are given. Um, reasons, written reasons for decision uh, are another way that we can combat this because forcing a judge uh, to stop, to think about their decision, to put it down on paper and explain it to other people to explain their decision-making process is a really good way to weed out the bias because the more we are conscious of our own decision-making, the less likely we're to be led into these kinds of errors. So a judge who makes an on-the-spot, um, you know, momentary decision about how many months someone should uh, be sentenced to prison, they're less likely to be led astray by someone throwing out a, a random number in sentencing submissions than if they go away, think about it for a while, come back with written, prepared sentencing remarks than they are if they make that uh, on-the-spot, heat-of-the-moment decision. Another thing that we can do is use multiple judges uh, in decision-making more often. So we often do that in appeal cases, but maybe there's scope and maybe there's good reason to have multiple judge panels making first instance decisions uh, on, a, on a wider range of matters. Um, because again, forcing judges to discuss things with each other or even having you know, multiple judges voting to decide you know, two out of three of us agree uh, in the plaintiff's favour and one disagrees, the fact that you have two judges you know, to make that decision means that you're less likely to be uh, led astray by the, the, the uh, implicit bias of one of those judges. Um, and I think one of the other things is to just ask judges to actually make their implicit bias explicit. So to really engage with the judicial education about the types of mistakes that are made the reasons that these mistakes are made. So um, do judges know enough about baby-faced defendants and you know the way that that could affect the way that they look at that person? So a judge who is aware of that, you know, just as we talked about, judges are more conscious about things like sexism and racism, and so they are more on guard about those uh, types of issues, but they're less on guard about things like, did my football team lose on the weekend? And to leave on a, on a positive note, 
judges are aware of this and they are trying to educate themselves and do continuing education about these um, emotional and uh, irrational aspects of, of human existence and how that affects their judici- judicial decision-making. Um, the Judicial College of Australia uh, holds regular conferences and they have run conferences and had experts come to talk to judges about um, how to put aside their personal feelings, um, how to identify the, you know, those risky implicit biases that might exist. Uh, last year, uh, 2019 in March, the National Judicial College of Australia ran uh, a conference about angry judges, biased judges. They had a retired American judge come and talk to them about uh, implicit bias and how judges can recognize and challenge their own implicit biases. They had uh, a professor from uh, Flinders University talk about um, judicial emotion. They had doctors and psychologists come and talk about mindfulness and how um, you know that sort of well-being and mindful practice can help judges keep a clear mind, make sure that they're focusing on what they need to focus on, and that they're not uh, unduly affected by you know irrelevant environmental or personal characteristics of people in the courtroom uh, and those sorts of issues. So the fact that judges are interested in this, the fact that they're bringing in key experts, legal experts, medical experts, uh, you know, international guests to talk about how do we address this problem uh, is a really good sign for the Australian legal system. In the meantime, make sure you dress up when you go to court. Address and reply. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future topics, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me on Twitter at hearsaycast, by email to robert at hearsaypodcast.com, or if you'd like to hear your voice on the podcast, head to the website at hearsaypodcast.com, click leave a voice message and follow the instructions. I hope to hear from you soon. Planet Friends. In the Learned Friends section of the podcast, I like to highlight uh, other resources that are useful for people who are interested in the law or in legal studies. And this episode, I'd like to highlight uh, another podcast called uh, In That Case. It's presented by Joel Townsend, who is a senior lawyer uh, at Victoria Legal Aid, and it focuses on really significant cases that have had a big impact on the law, and particularly from a human rights perspective. And what makes the podcast so great is that Joel talks to the people who are involved. When you listen to an episode about Marbo, for example, you'll hear from Greg McIntyre, who was one of the lawyers on that case. When you listen to the most recent episode about uh, Levy and the state of Victoria, um, you hear from Laurie Levy, who was the anti-duck hunting activist who's protest led to that significant decision about the implied freedom of political communication. So it's a real opportunity to go beyond just kind of, you know, textbook descriptions of old cases and to hear um, what was going on. How did they end up in court? Um, the significance of the decision for the people involved and then the, the, the broader context of um, where litigation fit in, in terms of uh, social campaigning and those sorts of things. It's a really good podcast. Uh, every episode is interesting, so check out In That Case. 
adjournment. I'll leave you with this excerpt from the judgment of a US district court judge in the last couple of weeks. This case involves counterfeit unicorn drawings. The complaint includes a few examples of products that allegedly infringe the plaintiff's trademarks, which offer striking designs and lifelike portrayals of fantasy subjects. One example is a puzzle of an elf-like creature embracing the head of a unicorn on a beach. Meanwhile, the world is in the midst of a global pandemic. The president has declared a national emergency. The governor has issued a statewide health emergency. As things stand, the government has forced all restaurants and bars in Chicago to shut their doors, and the schools are closed too. The government has encouraged everyone to stay home, to keep infections to a minimum, and help contain the fast-developing public health emergency. The United States District Court for the Northern District of Illinois took action last week to protect the public, issuing an order that, among other things, holds all civil litigation in abeyance. Last week, plaintiff filed a motion for temporary restraining order against the defendants and requested a hearing. This court thought that it was a bad time to hold a hearing on the motion. Plaintiff has not demonstrated that it will suffer an irreparable injury from waiting a few weeks. At worst, defendants might sell a few more counterfeit products in the meantime. But plaintiff makes no showing about the anticipated loss of sales. One wonders if the fake fantasy products are experiencing brisk sales at the moment. In response, plaintiff and its counsel filed a motion for for a hearing this week, telephonically if need be. Plaintiff recognises that the community is in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic. But plaintiff argues that it will suffer an irreparable injury if this court does not hold a hearing this week and immediately put a stop to the infringing unicorns and the knockoff elves. If there's ever a time when emergency motions should be limited to genuine emergencies, now's the time. 30 minutes ago, this court learned that the plaintiff filed yet another emergency motion. The filing calls to mind the sage words of Elihu Root. About half of the practice of a decent lawyer is telling would-be clients that they are damned fools and should stop. The world is facing a real emergency. Plaintiff is not. The motion to reconsider the scheduling order is denied. That's it from me. Until next time, take care of yourselves. PSA is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nations. Sovereignty was never ceded.